0: Good morning. My name is Taylor Reevely. I'm one of the worship leaders here, and it's my pleasure to continue our threefold series on the manifestations, the active manifestations of a life that delights in God through Jesus. Two weeks ago, Eric opened the series with a call to connect, and he said, Our mutual commitment to Christ leads us to love and value one another, so we do life together. Last week, Tim introduced the second of the three active manifestations with a call to serve. And he says, when we serve together, we do better, and Jesus looks most glorious. And this week, the third and final week, we shall discover that the gospel produces delight, and delight makes us engage. So the third of the three active manifestations of delight is engage. Three weeks ago, we passed around a booklet like this, a little New Life manual that contains the mission and vision of the church. And I articulate some of the identities and values that we hold here. Um, if you brought yours back, would you uh, open it now? And if you didn't, would you just remember from memory what was on page three, four, and five? And if you have not yet received one, um, the ushers are in the back and would love to give you one. So if you don't, ev- if you haven't even received one of these, would you raise your hand? And we'll make sure to get you one of these booklets so that you can track along and see what we're about here. When you get a book, turn to page one. In page one, it looks like this. It says, Mission. As a church, we are setting out or charting course to engage people disconnected from God so they delight in Him through Jesus. Connected, contained right here is the problem. The problem that we're addressing is that because of sin, every person is in various states of disconnection to God. And so that's not the goal. That's the problem. The goal is that every person would delight in God through Jesus. And so how do you get from the problem to the end result of disconnected people delighting in God through Jesus? The means is contained right here in the statement. Our plan is to engage the non-Christian, to engage those disconnected from God. Admittedly, though, some of us are in various states of disconnection from God as well. And so we live in this strange tension of, okay, so we're, we're connected to God in a sense. We're disconnected from Him in other senses because our lives are not fully sanctified. We still struggle with sin. We still struggle to believe every morning. And so we need each other. We need the gospel every day. Look at, look at page two. It says, we need the gospel. Every day we admit we need the gospel. Our delight in God is kindled by daily time in God's Word and daily time with Him in prayer. So there it is, that in that tension where we recognize we need the Gospel, that delight begins to grow, and delight begins to grow. And as it grows, it works itself out now in three specific ways. Skip a page and look at page four. Page four says, we do life together. We connect to each other. We need to help each other grow in our connection to God. I need you to help me in that. And so I'm going to connect. The next page says we serve as a team. Not only do I need you to help me connect to God, I think that you need me to help you connect to God. So I am going to serve, but I'm also going to connect. See how those are working in in tandem? Okay, we're all over this book. We're covering the whole thing right now. Back to page three. Page three says we are missionaries. The third activity that the light produces is to engage. We are all missionaries. Every normal, healthy Christian is a missionary. It says Jesus has sent us on the extension of his mission. He's called all people everywhere to delight in Him, and He's invited us now to partner with Him in that mission to reach those disconnected from God by engaging them. I've created a, a Venn diagram to illustrate just how these are interconnected, because it's um, I think it's easy to it's easy to say um, I'm going to pick one of those that I really like the most, and I'm going to be a pro at that one. Or it's really easy to say, um, I don't have to do the others because I'm doing the one. Or I'm just going to pick two. So look, look here just for a moment. I want you to notice two things, only two. You can notice all the other things if you want to, but two things. The first one is at the center of the Venn diagram is the word delight. And if you think about this threefold manifestation of delight, looking like a, f- a flower that opens up. The center of the flower is delight. The stem of the flower is delight. Everything that's surrounding is a manifestation of delight that's already true in your heart. You're already spending time with the Lord and growing in Him. You're already praying and experiencing communion with Him as you're connected to Him. The second thing I want you to see is that each of these are equally weighted. Okay, so each one is good in its own sense. The guy with the truck is a very helpful guy. And the people that come to the potluck, like especially the ones that bring food, are really helpful people. But when you only have those two things, it's good, but it's, it's incomplete. All three must function in unison to produce normal, healthy Christians responding to the gospel. The normal Christian, not the exceptional Christian, the normal Christian delights in God and, and it manifests itself in these three ways. But this Venn diagram and this booklet are uh, not really the authority for your life. And really they are only valuable to the degree that they align with the book of the living Lord. So would you please turn in your Bibles with me to Second Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we'll begin in verse 14 and read through the end of the chapter. Please follow along with me as I read from the English Standard Version. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In the brief time we have, I think that as we understand this passage, we'll grow in understanding that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, produces in us delight. And delight produces in us engagement. See the connection? The gospel causes us to delight in God. And that delight in God causes us to engage. Let's look at this. Let's begin at the beginning. We'll do what we can in the brief time we have. Um, Look at verse 14 and 15. The gospel causes us to delight. Delight. Verse 14, uh, it begins in the middle of a paragraph in which the Apostle Paul is writing to a local church, not unlike our own, calling them to act like normal, full-functioning, healthy Christians. He's explaining to them that this is how the apostles act, and he's calling them to just do the same. But when Paul arrives at verse 14 and he's expressing his conclusion, he does so in a little bit of a backwards way. There's a little word in the middle of verse 14, because... And that word reorients the the structure of the sentence and it begins now, verse 14 begins with the conclusion, expresses the premise of that conclusion at the end. So I want to just flip it and begin at the beginning of the argument. After the word because. Because. We've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Two men died two deaths, producing two different results. The first man that died in verse 14 is the Adam who has died for all, Therefore, all have died. Adam's sin, we bear the curse, the death that accompanies Adam's sin. The second man who died is Jesus, whose death has not brought death, but has brought life to all who would believe. The premise, frankly, is simply the gospel. Good news. So I want to take a moment just to rehearse that story, that story of how the first man's death brought death to all, the second man's death brings life to all. In the beginning, before the beginning, God existed in perfect, intimate community, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And He chose to create humanity, people with skin on, that were His image bearers, but He created them to experience that kind of closeness that He experienced. And he created them and put them in a place for them to live, and he had given them meaning and purpose, and he'd given them only one prohibition: don't eat from one tree." By doing so, by abstaining from eating that one tree, I believe that they would have demonstrated that that communion with God was worth trading any, uh, any lustful pleasure that life might provide. But you know how this story goes. There's a serpent in this tree that deceives Eve. And Eve takes a bite of the fruit, and she says, Wow, this is pretty good. And she gives some to Adam and he eats it as well. And sure enough, death indeed came to them both, and to every one of their offspring to the present day. The primary death they experienced was was spiritual. Immediately after this, God kicks them out of the garden. Okay, if there's not a more vivid picture of being removed from the presence of God. That is a consequence of sin. The secondary death was physical. They experienced pain and decay and their bodies would die. As God pronounced judgment on Adam and Eve for their treason, He made a promise, though, that one day a human offspring would crush the head of the deceptive serpent and reverse the curse, making possible these disconnected people to be reconciled back to God. But you turn one more page further, and the people continue to reject God. In Genesis chapter 4, we're still at the beginning of the book. In Genesis chapter 4, Cain murders his brother Abel. And in the next few chapters, God sends a worldwide flood to say, you know what, I'm going to pursue you, but I'm going to, I've got to start over. I've got to start with one man. I'll pursue him, Noah. But God's people continue to reject him. God then made covenants with Abraham, Moses, David, and he sent kings and judges and prophets to woo the people back to himself, but they continued to reject him. God's pursuit of His people then, it crescendoed into the arrival of the fulfillment of that promise way back in the garden. The fulfillment of the promise that was echoed through Abraham, Moses, and David, and the judges and the prophets and the kings in Jesus. Jesus lived the life that we could not live. Died the death we deserve to die and rises again now offering life and offering reconciliation with God through faith there is now a way for you to be made right with God and that my friends is good news to be a part of the those who live in Christ the story is not done the story will end as it began with now the reconciled people of God in the garden city with God himself experiencing and delighting in the full communion with God was designed to be. This is good news and it's all summed up in this one verse. One that is Adam has died for all therefore all have died and he who is Jesus died for all that all that those who live. But the gospel doesn't stop there. That Those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. So the gospel does not merely positionally reconcile people to God. It does not merely make you right before God. It reorients your life. The purpose, uh, in fact, the explicit purpose of the gospel here is that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but live for Christ. It's a new identity, a new purpose. You're a new creation. The same author, Paul, uh, writes in Galatians 2.20. I think this, this passage is helpful here. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. And I believe it is therefore, therefore, He says, the love of Christ controls us. Because all that is true, the love of Christ Controls us. The good news is that the gospel is so good that it positionally reconciles us and makes us right with God. And now it reorients our life and gives us a new identity, a new purpose to live for. As we read further, I think it will become uh, apparent what one of those purposes is. That the gospel that causes us to delight, to rejoice in what God has done, also causes us to engage. Look at verse 16. It begins with two transitional phrases now. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. From that moment, you could say, from that moment of experiencing the first hand delight in God through the gospel, therefore, as the necessary intended outcome, we regard no one according to the flesh. And it seems to me that one of the principal effects of gospel transformation is it changes the way we view people. It changes the way we view others. One commentator writes, Paul is affirming that ever since his own conversion to Christ, he has ceased making superficial, mechanical judgments about other people on the basis of outward appearances or according to the flesh, such as national origin, social status, intellectual capability, physical attributes, or even charismatic endowment and spiritual displays. As an example of what that human reorientation looks like, we the Apostle steps back and says, we, we used to look at Christ according to the flesh, but we don't do that anymore. He's not merely a man who was unjustly hung on a cross. No, he is the God-man Jesus sent to reconcile us to himself through his substitutionary, sacrificial death and resurrection. That's not a physical, fleshly understanding of Jesus. That is a spiritual understanding of Jesus. And he's saying that enlightenment also changes the way we view those around us. The, the Christian, the normal Christian, now sees people in a spiritual light. People are, are your, your your coworker, your neighbor. Your children are not merely bodies of flesh that progress through forms of nature. People have souls. Dead in Adam. Separated from God, desperately, though perhaps unintentionally or subconsciously, attempting to reconcile themselves with God, yet unable to attain it through natural means. That's a different view of just, is a cool guy or not a cool guy. As the Gospels transform the way we view Christ, the Gospel also must transform the way we view other people. I, I was thinking, what are some of the what are some of the ways that we would view people according to the flesh? And they're pretty natural. What are some, what are some ways? We might, we might think of someone according to the flesh in terms of a good or a bad person. I've got some good neighbors that don't need very much help and some bad neighbors that need a lot of help. Clean or dirty. Cool or uncool. Rational or irrational. Irrational homosexual, heterosexual, homeschooled or public schooled, male or female, black or white, friend or stranger, all these according to the flesh. And what's happening is the gospel's changing the way we view people. We don't see them in those categories anymore. We now view people in terms of spiritual categories. There are people who are unbelievers and believers, non-Christians, Christians. Separated from God by sin. Reconciled to God through Jesus. Dead in Adam or in Adam or alive in Christ. There are different categories for people that don't really work with eyeballs. they spiritual perception of people. Verse 17 then begins with another transitional phrase. The Gospel has changed the way that we view others. It's changed the way that we view Christ. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This verse is, of course, a key identity verse for a church called New Life. But read right in the context of Paul's development, it could be understood that the people who are in Christ are new creations. And they think differently differently. They operate differently than the old creation. They see people in a new way. Their old way of thinking about Christ and about people, according to the flesh, has passed away. The new has come. Their paradigm is renewed. When a person becomes a Christian, they experience a total restructuring of life that alters its entire fabric the thinking, the feeling, the willing, and the acting are all transformed. They're all um, the gospel speaks and changes all of those things. Anyone who is in Christ follows a new and better King of a new and better kingdom with new and better ways to live than according to the flesh. And here in this new life. Here, having a renewed perspective on people that views them with spiritual love, we reach the apex of this call to engage. So, verse 18 and 19. The next two verses are parallel, and they're joined by a phrase called, uh, which is, that is, which is equating them. So I want, as we read them, I want you to overlay them, basically, if you want to look at verse 18, left to right for you. Verse 18, and then I want you to say, that is, Verse 19, okay? Verse 18, all this, the new attitudes, the new creation, is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Overlay them and let's break them into two halves. The first half of verse 18 reads thus, God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. The first half of verse 19 reads, God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. In each of these, the actor is God. The one doing the action, doing the reconciling is God. And the agent is the same, Christ. He has a one, a one plan for reconciling people. That is through Jesus. But the activity and the object are nuanced to bit. In verse 18, the activity is past. God has reconciled us. And in verse 19, it becomes present. God is reconciling. The object also was nuanced from us, new creation Christians, he reconciled us, Christians, to now he is reconciling the world. Everybody. I've already rehearsed the good news that God reconciles people through Jesus. But I think that this nuance is, is designed to challenge our paradigm again. Because it's easy for us to agree with verse 18. God has reconciled us, past, in Jesus. Verse 19 carries a different tone though. What we see is that God is reconciling in the present the entire world to Himself. God isn't done because He reconciled a couple people in the past who are now supposed to go and sit in in a church building with the doors closed on a Sunday morning. God is presently reconciling the world to himself. Both of these are true. You see, God is on a mission. God's on a mission to reconcile people back to himself through Jesus. And he's inviting every person Each person, then, has the responsibility to respond to that invitation to be reconciled to God. Each person, and we're going we're gonna to wrestle for the rest of our lives with the each-person-ness of the world. That yes, that one guy, yes, that one neighbor, God is pursuing them to reconcile them too. Now notice what is added in verse 19. Okay, so verse 18 and 19 is really parallel, but there's an extra phrase in verse, the first half of verse 19. Not counting their trespasses against them. We've already talked about having a renewed perspective towards the way we view people, but this, I think this, as an example, takes that perspective to an entirely new level. That God, the object of the offense in the pursuit of reconciling people through Jesus, is able to not count their sins against them. But me, over here, I am actually a part of the offending party, have a really hard time ignoring people's sin in my own life. I think about... I'm just going to be, be frank. I think about... Um, my human tendency, the way that I would view people in the flesh. Every person in my life that I'm in, engaged with, really every person in my life has sin in their life, including myself, uh, including myself, that needs to be cleaned up. And I think about uh, my inclination is to place this cleaning up. I'm going I'm to give you Jesus and he's going to clean up your life. A place that cleaning up is a priority over and against reconciliation with God. And it doesn't really matter which one comes first, reconcile and be cleaned, or clean yourself up so you can be reconciled. Both of them are fallacies and not the gospel. I think this addition in verse 19 is to clearly illustrate that God the offended is able to reconcile a person, not count their trespasses against them. God makes old things new. He does so by saving and by sanctifying. God does not say, clean yourself up and then I will save you. Nor does God save and then say, now you clean up. God saves and invites, let me clean you up. And that's the difference. I can't say that. I need a new perspective on people that is obsessed that they be reconciled with God. Because God's obsession is that people be reconciled with Him. Primarily, preeminently be reconciled to God. So when we combine this renewed, our our new identity in the gospel with our renewed perspective on the way that we view people, now with um, this view as to how God saves people, We view people as God views people. Now, this person invites all people everywhere to be reconciled to God. Let's look at the second half. Okay, everything we've said so far um, has been an introduction to this. So, the second half of verse 18 and 19. God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And in verse 19 it says, God is entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. In verse 18, God the reconciler gives us the ministry of reconciliation. Literally, the service of reconciliation. There is an active element to reconciliation that includes, but is not limited to, serving non-Christians in a way that lovingly leads them to be reconciled to God. But this love is not all active. This love has a message. This love has words. Because of its development in verse 19, God the reconciler gives us and trusts to us the message of reconciliation, literally the word of reconciliation. There is a verbal element, a message of reconciliation. you have heard the proverb, preach the gospel and if necessary use words. And I've heard that. And it's it's good, it's true but the words are necessary. So, just take the if necessary part out, preach the gospel and use words. Ministry of reconciliation, you're active. Message of reconciliation, you're calling people to be reconciled to God. In your neighborhood, uh, oh, okay, so this is this now is... This new identity, one of these new identities of people that have been changed by the gospel, the delight in God through Jesus, is they become reconcilers. God doesn't just reconcile people to to put them in a little building and say, go be your holy huddle, uh, serve and connect one another. He's called people, he reconciles people to be reconciling agents in the world. That is a very normal Christian thing to do. That is not reserved for missionaries. You're all missionaries. That's not reserved for the hyper spiritual people on the street corner. That's reserved for every person who believes Jesus is now a reconciler. You've been given a message and a ministry of reconciliation. I was thinking about how these two are necessary together. Um, In your neighborhood, perhaps you might be the best gutter cleaner leaf raker, and you might just love your neighbors to death and serve them every day. And you could do that and never once talk to a neighbor, never once ask a neighbor a question, and never once say, be reconciled to God. And in that situation, all of that ministry of reconciliation, all of that activity, all of that service isn't engagement. That's a a one-sided, dysfunctional view of what it means to be reconciling people to God. The other situation, though, is you could, in your neighborhood, walk around to every house and you could hand every person a gospel tract and say, be reconciled to God. And if you've never served them, you've never loved them, they don't feel any love from you, You kind of end up just being the person that they don't want to invite to their parties. When these two, the, the ministry, the service of reconciliation and the message of reconciliation are wedded together, there is a credible, authentic and genuine Christian who lovingly leads people to be reconciled to God. And that's what we mean when we say engage. Both of them people disconnected from God, you engage them with the ministry of reconciliation and the message of reconciliation. So what does this message of reconciliation look like, I suppose? Verse 20 begins with yet another transition word. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. People who have been reconciled to God are... Uh, have been given the ministry and the message of reconciliation and are now ambassadors. What comes to mind when you think of an ambassador? Politics. You think of a guy in a suit representing another country, sitting in the White House with our president, talking about some deal. And it's pretty accurate view of what it means to be an ambassador. Our our primary understanding is political, um, as it was in the time of Paul. To be an ambassador in the ancient world, Greek, Roman, or Jewish, it involved three things, as it does in modern times. The first that it involved is a commissioning for a special assignment. Uh, uh, Okay, you go represent me to this people. The second thing it entailed was representing the sender. The ambassador does not represent himself or his own views but represents the one who sent him. And the final thing is that the ambassador exercises the authority of the sender. So when the ambassador says, yes, we'll make this deal, it's not this guy in the suit that's making the deal, it's the guy that sent him making the deal through the ambassador. But I think there might be another way to to think of being an ambassador. Um, How can you tell... How can you tell if someone does CrossFit? Don't worry, they'll tell you. (laughs) Their life is all about CrossFit. They wear the clothes. They go to the gym. They eat a different way. And the first thing they let you know is that they do CrossFit. And that's a generalization, of course. That's a generalization. I think it's helpful to... to, Think, though, that an ambassador is someone that just embodies the thing that they're all about. Every part of their life is transformed by the the thing, the person they represent. They live for something, not themselves. They live for a sender, someone else. So I'm not saying be like the CrossFitter, though there might be merit in that. But there's something to be said about living in such a way, this full life transformation, the love of Christ compelling us, or those in the newness of life, um, that they might not live any longer for themselves. There's something about living that way that does what Jesus does and says what Jesus says as an ambassador for him. I just want to mention too that In the generation that we live in, perhaps the number one factor of effective engagement is authenticity. Millennials, my generation, can snuff out an inauthentic person in a second. And if they disagree with you, but you're authentic, they're okay with that. They would love to have a conversation with you, learn more about what you believe, and would appreciate the authenticity of your life. Ambassadors aren't just phony people that put the suit on, and then like kind of pretend to mimic this descender. Their life comprehensively must embody in both the ministry and the message. So, what is this message of reconciliation? What is it that Jesus says? Verse 20 continues, God makes his appeal through us, and this appeal is this. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. Simply put, the message of reconciliation is be reconciled to God. If, if you're looking on a, on a Sunday's sermon about engagement or mission, if you're looking for some new trick or fad like a, a, a number of spiritual laws or any number of spiritual steps or um, I me mean, to send you out with the gospel tracts, probably have engagement wrong. The message is simply be reconciled to God. Someone who engages is someone who is actively loving, actively serving, and then actively saying, Be reconciled to God. That's, that's why I'm doing this. It's what life is all about. That's the way to find meaning and purpose in life. Life doesn't get better, but there's there's hope. Finally, Paul concludes this paragraph in verse 21. And he concludes right back where he began in verse 14 and 15. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Good news. Again. It doesn't follow the the death-life motif of verse 14 and 15, but it now considers this. You were... In sin. And now you're in righteousness. If you're reconciled to God, this verse is now true of you. You're the righteousness of Christ. And if this is now true of you, you are filled. I think this, I think this has to fill you with a deep delight in God through Jesus. But that doesn't always feel happy or giddy about it. But the anchor that undergirds and withstands the storm of life is this delight in God through Jesus. And someone who has that delight is likewise a reconciler, an ambassador, as you engage others. So this is what we're talking about when we use language like we engage, or like on verse three, page 3 when we are uh, talking about being missionaries. As people who have been reconciled to God, we engage those not reconciled to God with the message and the ministry of reconciliation. The Gospels change the way we view people. And the Gospels affected the way that we now represent Christ and partner with Him in His mission as His ambassadors. If the Gospel indicative, okay, what is true about us, in the gospel. If that affects the way that we live, we will necessarily become a people who engage. That's a very normal conclusion of the effect of the gospel. We will now represent Christ and partner with him in his mission as his ambassadors. Look again at page three, if you have it. Page three of your New Life Manual. We are missionaries. That page. There are three bullet points on the right-hand side that I just want to highlight. Because, because this is so vague, I was just going to admit it's very vague. Be reconcilers. You do the ministry of reconciliation. You have the message of reconciliation. Okay, all the time, with anybody who's disconnected from God, anywhere, any activity, Any formulation, any word structure of be reconciled to God, you can use. But be an engaging person. So we put three bullet points in this handbook to help give some of the, to to lay a track for those wheels to run on. The first one is we maintain a prayer list of people disconnected from God. We have mission on our calendar and have margin for people. And the third one is we aim for at least one drink or meal per week with people disconnected from God. So the moral of the story is, is don't overthink it. Don't let the, the open endedness of your role as a reconciler, as an ambassador, paralyze you. Let me give you three things. The way that I act with these is um, I have a reminders app on my phone, and I just set up a, re- a repeating reminder on Thursday mornings at 8 to pray for all my neighbors. And it just pops up, and I can ignore it if I want to, but it's really hard because there's a lot of neighbors. So I kind of have to pray for my neighbors as I'm scrolling through their names. But we maintain a prayer list. Maintain a prayer list. Whatever it is, put it on your mirror, whatever. Uh, Andy and I try to schedule um, mission stuff. We try to schedule engagement. It doesn't usually just happen on accident. There aren't a lot of things in life that happen on accident. So instead of merely um, hoping that something happens, just put it on a calendar. Make it happen. It, you'll often have to be the first person to invite, to initiate. And so it's easy for you, because you can just put something on your calendar and say, would you like to come to this thing with me? You could come. Yeah, I'm having. There's a dinner that I'm making. I'm already going to make it on Sunday night. Would you like to come? I'll make twice. I'll make four times the amount. So schedule, make a plan for engagement. I've just I've found that um, if you don't pri- if you don't prior- uh, schedule your priorities, if you don't schedule the things that matter most, you'll be forever trying to prioritize your schedule with everything on it, and you'll you'll pretty much never do any of the main things that need to happen because there are more more urgent things that creep up. So schedule this kind of engagement. Be flexible and do it off the cuff, but schedule it at least. And then finally, um, we aim for at least one drink or meal a week. You can be a reconciler or an ambassador doing just about any activity that you can imagine. So it's not about that. It's not about the meal or the drink per week. We just see that there are things that every one of us kind of have to do every day that are actually great tools to engage someone with the good news, be reconciled to God. Um, Never eat alone. And when you are eating alone, be praying through your list of people disconnected from God. Invite someone to pray with you. Conversation is freer. Uh, Dialogue is more natural when you're eating or drinking with someone, when there's something in their hand, when there's something for them to do except for just sit there and look at you. So eat with somebody. And our aim here is not to merely say this is what's expected of every healthy, normal Christian. So do it. (laughs) It's not the aim. The aim is not just get it in gear. Our aim is to walk with you, not as experts, but as encouragement through this. I recognize this is hard. I recognize that my script is five words. Be reconciled to God. How am I going to do this? So we want to feed you resources. We want to equip you to do this well. Uh, You may recall the Next Door um, initiative that happened this summer where we just called you to have a party with your neighbors. But we didn't just want to say, go have a party with your neighbors. We wanted to say, you know what, we're going to back you. We'll, we'll send you money if that's what you need to do this. But we're going to create a little space called the Next Door Forum where we will crowdsource and share with one another tools and tips for how to throw a neighborhood party. So a few of us came to that, and I think it was helpful, it was helpful for, me, for me. We're doing that again. The Next Door thing is, is part of this life of engagement. It's not a summer thing. It happens your whole life. And um, this fall, I want to encourage you to invite a neighbor over to dinner at your place. Some of them will say no. Some of them will be busy. Some of them will have allergies to everything that you can make. But some of them might come. One of them might come. And then we don't just want to say, okay, invite someone over to dinner and then figure out what to do. We want to say, okay, let's share our, let's pool together our conversation strategies, um, our how to be a good host, tips, um, whatever it might be to help us do that well and figure out how to be the best engagers so we can be the best ambassadors. There's another next door forum coming up on October 8th. In some respect, I do just want to say, just do it, give it a try. Be an engager. Don't hang out with only Christians. You've got to hang out with some people that, that are separated from God. Unlike you, perhaps. You have to. You have to love them. Let's walk together. We'll figure it out and we'll try. But in another sense, I don't want to say that. In another sense, Jesus is the one that has the words for you. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, make disciples, baptizing and teaching. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. If that doesn't compel reconciled people who Jesus would be with to be reconcilers, then I'm at a loss. I don't know what. So let me pray for you now as we go and we engage together. Father, we're thankful. Primarily, we're thankful. Before we ask for help, we're going to thank you. We're thankful that you've spoken to us, that you've made promises and covenants with us, that you have kept as you have reconciled us in Jesus to yourself. We're thankful that we are a people with hope. We're thankful that we're a people now with a purpose, not just to exist and like reproduce, but to live for you. To be your ambassadors, your, your voice, your hands and your feet on earth. God this is it 's not an easy thing, but God, we trust that it will be good, and we trust that as our delight in you produces this activity that it will bring others to delight in you as well. God I ask that as we engage um, that you would give us clarity that you would that you would simplify this um, this big, vague idea of, of being a reconciler, that you would simplify that in our minds and give us some practical things and ways that we could begin or upgrade our engagement. And then, God, I just ask that you would, you would bear fruit. That we would get excited about being a reconciler because we're seeing people be reconciled to you. So spirit work in our hearts, continue to transform the way we view people. Work in our lives. Give us um, energy and strength to be ambassadors with the ministry and message of reconciliation. And God, would you just cause us as we, en- as we engage to delight in you more and more and would you win others to yourself as well. We pray in your name. Amen.